You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, you rolled in here today looking a little bit wiser. Yeah. A little bit like you've collected some additional life experience between the last time we talked to you a week ago and today. You know, I've I've been over the horizon, Chad, and I've come back and I got to tell you it's rough out there. I uh, see so even rougher than you think. Your wife uh gave birth to your second child. That's right. Really early on Saturday morning? Saturday morning 8:09 in the AM in the one true time zone. This is a second girl. That's right. Second female child for the for the folks family, folks as well family. And see, I was going to to celebrate. First, I was going to bring in some cigars like they used to do, and then I was like, "Oh, Chad will just be an asshole about you know probably won't let me smoke a cigar in his house." Yeah, like a jerk. And, and then I was like, "All right, I'll bring in some champagne." And then I was like, "Oh, Chad will complain about that because it'll give him a headache or something." So instead, next best thing, I brought in some donut holes and queued up my phone to YouTube to play this. Yeah, it's the sound of a champagne cork popping. Suddenly it feels to me like we have a wacky TV or wacky morning show, radio morning show in here well, with a bunch of sound effects. It's high time. Like, JT and the bear. That's right. Well, you're the bear. Boy, oh, 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 The sound of a toilet flushing. Let me tell you something. Like you said, the second child for us, two girls, and that's it. We're fucking done. And one of the things, and let me tell you something just about how awesome uh, my wife is because at uh, about 3.30 in the morning, she started to, to feel like maybe some stuff was going to happen. About 4.30 in the morning, we got everything together to go to the hospital. Um, and you know, she, I was warming up the car. She went out there. She sat in the car. Uh, and I was getting our daughter in there to drop her off, getting all the bags and stuff in there. And when I got in the car to pull out of the driveway, I realized – my wife had put in a CD that started with the Rocky theme. It was the the gonna fly now, uh-huh. uh, like that he where he's doing his running montage, and she was just calmly sitting there listening to it. I didn't even know we had this CD, uh, <laughs> and getting our game face on before we drove to the hospital. And she went in there, no pain meds, uh, just about four hours of actual labor, and uh, did the damn thing. And now we're done. One of the things I helped. Her, get her See, through you with. keep saying you're done, but you're actually just getting started. Well, I mean, you're done having additional children, we're not but producing any new ones. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to make damn sure of that. And one of the things that she asked me to keep reminding her of during difficult points in the labor uh, was that she will never do this bullshit again, ever. I guess that's a good thing to keep in mind. Two things that I wanted to mention before we move on, not to let the people, the co-main event universe, behind the curtain too much, but you went out the night before, right? Yes. Yeah. Do you I want did. to talk about that? Like you arrived home late. Yeah. Uh, closed down the bar the night before. Uh, good, because probably for the last time in your life. Well, and see, the baby wasn't due for another couple of days. And so I thought, all right, I'll be working Saturday night for UFC 184. The baby could be here. My parents arrived Sunday, yesterday. Uh, and then we thought the baby would be, you know, sometime this week. And I figured it might be my last chance to go out and, and hang out to an irresponsible hour. Um, and didn't even, 
didn't even really drink a whole lot, just kind of stayed out late just to enjoy that feeling um, and got home at around 2.30 a.m., got a, got a quick 20, 30 minutes of sleep uh, somewhere in there, then uh, went to the hospital, watched my wife have a baby, then went back and forth between the hospital and taking care of our toddler back at home, and uh, yeah. So how did that impact? The second thing I wanted to bring up was how that impacted your UFC 184 Saturday night. You know, did you the, make it? Even did you watch it? Or? By the time I got I got home and got my daughter to bed, it was right around the time the pay per view was starting, at around eight o'clock here in the one true time zone, which is late for the rest of us, even when we haven't had a baby. Yeah, like we're ready to tuck in at that point. And haven't stayed up all, literally all night. Um, so I watched the the first two fights on the pay per view, and then was like, "What am I doing? Um, I'm really really tired, and tomorrow's not going to be a whole lot easier." So I recorded the rest of it. Went to bed, and then uh, when my daughter got up in the morning before we went to the hospital to, to check on uh, my wife and, and youngest daughter, which feels weird to say, uh, she and I sat there and we watched we watched some fights. We watched Ronda Rousey do her thing. Uh, didn't take too long. No, got that one out of the way quick. Yeah, and got to skip through all the other bullshit. Not too bad. Well, congratulations to you and the thank family. You. Thank you. I didn't really do much, but thank you. We got music this week, Ben. This week's music comes to us from listener John Camille Farah, who's been on the show before. He's a pianist who splits his time between Toronto and Berlin. Say pianist. Pianist. (laughs) Uh, His new album just dropped. It's called Between Carthage and Rome, and you can find it at his website, John Farah. That's F-A-R-A-H dot com or John Camille Farah dot bandcamp dot com. We'll put links to that stuff per usual on the website co-main event when we get this this episode posted. Between Carthage and Rome is just like the Mediterranean Sea, right? I don't know. Maybe it's a reference to the to his own travel. Do you think? I hope so. I feel like there's got to be a story there and we should hear it. Um, he'll probably email us now. So email we'll, us. We'll email us the damn to, story. To fill everyone in. Three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, seriously, how does it feel to know that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, man, woman, or child, you've only got two functioning arms because Ronda Rousey has allowed you to have two functioning arms. And in round number two, just like Jesus himself, Manny Newton dropped his Bellator light heavyweight title during the British invasion on Friday night. If your shockwaves are rumbling and your deja vus are tingling, it could be because Easter is right around the corner. And you know what that means. The big homie will be risen. You know, you're... Your understanding of the Jesus story might need some tweaking here. And in round number three, Holly Holm didn't look that great in her UFC debut on Saturday, but Chris Cyborg looked as ferocious as ever the night before at Invicta 11. Betch Cohia is still talking that mess, and Jessica I thinks she's in the mix. Seems like we're going to have to make some tough calls about where to go with Ronda Rousey's career here, like, right now. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but right now, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Mark from Cumbria, England. He writes, the year is 2015. Ken Shamrock and Kimbo Slice are getting ready to do the damn thing for a major promotion on a major platform. Need I say anything else except, oh yeah, I'm 100% going to watch that shit. Everybody's going to watch that shit. 
Let's yeah. let's get that out of the way right now. My, like, well, let's talk all the shit we want to, but there's no way you're not going to watch that. See, I'm not even going to waste any time talking any shit about this. My initial reaction to it when I first heard, well, the first reaction was, what? And then <laughs> like five seconds later, my reaction was, Bellator MMA, crazy like a damn fox. Yeah. Because they're booking fights over there that... You might not consider, right? Like when you, if you're just going about your day, you might not consider them as a possibility. Uh, and you, as you said, they're fights that we're all going to make fun of. But Kimbo Slice against Ken Shamrock has the chance to be the most watched fight of the year, right? Wow, that's incredible. I, now that like you, I will, you, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that turned out to be the case, right? Cause it's going to do bigger numbers than Tito versus, uh, Stefan Bonner did last year. And that was the most watched cable TV fight of, of that year, correct? You think Kimbo Slice and Ken Shamrock's old ass just roll right up on Conor McGregor, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that would be, say some, that would say something uh, about all of us. You know what I saw it as? Because at first, like you, I think I went through the what phase. And then I realized this is a declaration. Like, this is a mission statement, basically, from yes. Bellator. Yes. Like, this is as much of a thesis as you're going to get. That's right. This is Bellator saying, like, all right, we see what this sport is and or at least has become. We know how that game is played, and damn it, we can do that too. You're going to go over there and sign CM Punk? You're going to be booking fun fights over there? Fine. We'll book batshit insane fight. We'll book fights that were batshit insane when they were originally planned like seven damn years ago, and we'll just we'll just run them back and pretend like we'll, with a straight face like it's just a totally normal thing to do. Like this is just a, about the fans want to see. And we'll all make fun of it, and then we'll all sit there and watch it because, shit, it's on free TV, and it's going to be bonkers. How could it not be bonkers? So you're going to sit down and watch that. And you meant you just mentioned this, but one of the best things about it is that Bellator is going to play this with a completely straight face. Yes. <laughs> Hashtag unfinished business, which they already <laughs> did. Uh, and so I think it's kind of brilliant, man. I think the whole thing is kind of brilliant. Like, clearly, they can't compete as, like, an A-list player with the UFC, uh, you know, putting on uh, the most – uh, like, uh, 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 credible fights, but like they can do this and this is pretty goddamn good in terms of, uh, you know, drawing eyeballs and making money, which I think if you're Bellator is probably the thing that you need to do most. That should be like your number one priority, right? Is proving to Viacom that you can make money and be like a, a profitable enterprise. And then you never know. Viacom might loosen the pur the purse strings on the five billion in cash that we always hear about. And then if they do that, well, then then all bets are off. Man. Well, I think it's also not just that you need to make some money in the short term, but also, if you're Bellator, you have some talented fighters on the roster at this point. You need to get people in the door to watch them. And the way you do that is you promise people Kimbo and Shammy, and they show up there, and maybe they see your, you know, your your Michael Pages, uh, your your Liam McGeary's, if you will, uh, maybe even a little bit of Paul Daly thrown in there, just a dash, just a dash of that. Maybe a Tam Dan McCrory or two. You know, you, you get them in there, you show them what else you have while they're there, and they start to realize, oh, wait a minute, maybe Bellator is like, I came here to make fun of it, but maybe it's actually got some stuff worth watching. You and I were talking about this the other day right after this fight got announced, and that is that the Kimbo Slice signing obviously is ridiculous, but at the same time, if you think about Kimbo Slice fighting almost anyone on the Bellator roster, 
the end result is would watch, yeah, right? Like pretty much. Kimbo slice against Tito Ortiz would watch. Totally would Kimbo watch. slice against Czech Congo even would watch. Kimbo slice against the big homie Manny Newton would watch. Totally would watch. It's just it's 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 just matchmaking magic over there. Yeah, having Kimbo slice underneath the Bellator tent. Uh, next question comes to us from Andrew B. He writes, so Mark Munoz got choked out in less than two minutes this past weekend. Before that, he got submitted by Musasi in the first round. And before that, he suffered a head kick KO in the first round by Machida. What's next for him at this point? I don't think he's well known enough to be a gatekeeper or enter the fun fight zone. Retirement, more losses, Bellator, discuss. Uh, tough, tough go for Mark Munoz yeah. uh, this past weekend, who I think you've mentioned it before. Uh, and most of the people that, that work... Uh, in the industry knows, no, Mark Munoz, super nice guy, uh, super uh, accommodating and, and, uh, you know, kind of thoughtful guy. It's, it's tough to see him go out like this, but even on the Fox Sports broadcast, I don't know if you watched this part since you caught up with it later, but like, you know, Daniel Cormier, who's a, a friend, uh, and I think sometimes training partner with, with Mark Munoz was even talking about how, when you have the run, the, the, the difficult run that Mark Munoz has had, like, uh, you gotta kinda reevaluate your priorities in life. And, and Mark Munoz is a, is a good guy with a good family and, and has kids and, and runs a gym and, and does some coaching stuff on the side. So, uh, like even his, his, uh, fighter friends after this one were kind of saying publicly on the television, it might be time to think about, you know, something else. Well, you know, that's something I talked to him about before the fight because you do hear a lot from, a lot of people about a you know not only what a good person he is and a nice guy he is but what a good coach he is and how how well he suited he seems to that role of, of running a gym being a coach and and grooming a lot of fighters under him uh and everybody who has been in there just says nothing but great things about him and so you wonder like all right he's already in his late 30s i think he's 37 uh, if you encounter a little bit of a losing streak and you've dealt with some injuries in the past couple of years, wouldn't now be a good time to just transition into that role full time? Because we've heard it over and over again from people that you can't do both very well, that you can't be a trainer and worry about your own fighting career without kind of half-assing both of them. That's what you hear over and over again, especially from guys who have tried to do it and then eventually realized that they couldn't do it. Um, and his point was that he felt like if he were to quit now, just because he'd been going through some hard times, uh, he wouldn't feel like he was going out having done the best he could, and he felt like that would make him a hypocrite in the eyes of the people that he trains, and that he needed to, you know, put forth a better effort, even if it didn't result in wins. And so it's hard to see him looking at this one and going, "Yeah, okay, I feel like I got to where I need to get." But on the other hand, as we've talked about over and over again, looking for an ideal ending in this sport. Uh, is a good way to stick around and keep getting beat up for far too long. Almost nobody ends well. You know, it's like yeah. looking for like a good death. Like <laughs> a lot of times it's not anything you want to have happen. It just fucking happens. Right. And f for Mark Munoz, you can totally understand kind of the frustration maybe because he's a guy who didn't even come to the UFC until he was in his mid thirties, then spent some time, uh, messing around at, at 205 pounds, I guess you could say, and always seemed like a guy that had a ton of potential, had a, uh, uh, you know, a, a fairly impressive amateur wrestling background and MMA wise had skills that were very impressive when he, when he got the chance to utilize them. Like some 
some of the nastiest ground and pound in the entire sport, really, when, when, uh, you know, when, when he got a chance on cork, it finally got down to 185 pounds, but now is maybe in the twilight of his career. And, uh, initially it seemed like maybe he could do some good things down there. Uh, and I remember when they announced his fight with Machida, I thought, oh, like, that's actually kind of a tough fight for Machida coming down to 185. And then, of course, Machida just went through him like a hot knife through butter, really. Uh, but for Mark Munoz, you could understand from an athlete perspective thinking that, like, you know, you never, uh, like made good on the, on the potential that you probably personally thought you had. So I can understand the frustration, but like you said, uh, you know, you can't, you can't let you, you know, you can't let pride smacking you in the face as uh, they would say in Pulp Fiction, uh, let you talk yourself into sticking around longer than you should. Yeah. Um, but it is worth noting, like he, he didn't get too many easy outs there. Uh, if you look at his last few before this one, you know, Ryan Carnero was the guy who won that one night uh, tournament, so he's a, a pretty solid dude on a good run right now. Uh, but before that, it was Gegard Mousasi, the young vagabond, uh, Leota Machida before that, uh, Tim Boach, which is the, the last one he won, and Chris Weidman before that. I mean, damn, that's, that's a lot of tough fights to, to deal with in the span of in a little less than two years. Yeah, kind of salt in the wounds, honestly, for Munoz, I bet, to have Carnero come up from welterweight choke you out in a minute and 40 seconds and then after the fight be like yeah i'll probably go back to welterweight yeah that mm. you know what maybe maybe don't tell mark about that <laughs> the next question this week comes from the mind of dre uh friend of the podcast we've had his music on the show before good follow on twitter by the way if you're That's out right. there looking for people to follow the mind of dre puts out uh wasn't doing it for a while, I don't think, but now he recently has started again putting out songs of the day that, that from artists that he likes, uh, and they're almost always good. I saw he posted today the uh, Action Bronson official music video for Acting Crazy, his first, what I believe is his first single off the forthcoming album. I'm so, looking forward to that forthcoming album, by the way. He writes, okay, guys, let's get real here. Sure, everyone and their fight-obsessed mom are watching Coscheck foam with the mouth on repeat via Vine. Sure, sure, Google didn't even own YouTube when Jake Ellenberger got his last submission win. And sure, I got all types of nostalgia seeing what would have been an awesome number one contenders fight in 2010. But was I the only one unimpressed with that performance? I mean, other than Koscheck's best rabies impression, which I still have on repeat as we speak. Thoughts on the 29-year-old, question mark, exclamation point, question mark, uh, juggernaut discuss. Uh, so yeah, I thought this actually was one of the UFC slow motion replays that I could have done without the one where they show, uh, Josh Koscheck foaming at the mouth while he's getting choked out by Jake Ellenberger. And I think kind of a Mark Munoz type situation, maybe for Josh Koscheck. He'd been away for a while. Uh, he's a guy that even though he takes a lot of guff in the MMA world has earned uh, a lot of guff, has earned a lot of guff and, and has acted, uh, like kind of an asshole sometimes. Let's just do brass tax but Most he's al he's also a smart dude he's also uh, a guy who owns his own gym i think in fresno uh, and a guy who, who comes from a, a great wrestling background and, and a guy who you'd think might be a good coach if he applied himself there. Uh, late thirties, tough run of losses, had been away for a couple of years. Uh, this certainly doesn't, I guess, uh, improve hopes for his future. You know, and I remember the last time, uh, when, I think it was for his last knockout loss, wasn't it, uh, Dana White saying that Josh Koshek had started sending him texts, uh, saying things that sounded like, he might retire soon. So it was, it's a little bit surprising to see him pop back up for this one. Um, and, I mean, I guess you could say, hey, at least he didn't go and get knocked out. But it didn't look great. Uh, wasn't really able to get his wrestling going there. And that seemed to be the only thing he really wanted to do. Uh, and then got submitted. I mean, it, it, 
it probably should be time for Josh Kostick here. But let's talk about Jake Ellenberger. Yes. I like the pointing out that uh, Google didn't even own YouTube last time he got a submission. The last time that he got a submission, by the way, uh, was against Kenneth Allen, that dude who you might remember that I wrote a hashtag lifestyle piece on him because he's the guy often mentioned as uh, the worst MMA fighter in the world oh. <laughs> uh, because he, he just takes fights on super short notice, especially there in the Midwest, and uh, just fight whoever. And he's fought a bunch of big names like like Jake Ellenberger. Um, but you know, he'll just roll into fight, doesn't really give a damn, uh, and got submitted there. So that was back in March of 2006. Right. So obviously, you know, maybe it hasn't been a huge part of Jake Ellenberger's game, but he's another one where I feel like you can, you get the sense maybe that Jake Ellenberger doesn't fall off, but then you look back at his record yeah. and come on, man, he lost to Kelvin Gastelum, which was a bit of a surprise, but Gastelum was, uh, was on a, a tear right then. And is still, even to this day, a guy that we have no idea how good he is really. Yeah. Uh, before that, Robbie Lawler. Yeah, pretty, pretty good fighter there in the welterweight division. That's right. Uh, before that, Roy McDonald. The Red King. <laughs> don't, don't you even. Pretty good fighter down there at 170 pounds, the Red King. The water boy. Aries. Waterboy Roy McDonald. Uh, and before that, he knocked out Nate Marquardt, beat Jay Heron in a decision, and lost that TKO to Martin Campman, uh, where, you know, seemed like he was going to win that one and then kind of just got caught. Uh, so I feel like he has been unlucky in some regards. I feel like also he's talked before about some of his mental struggles uh, in the game. So I'm sure this one was really important for him uh, just psychologically to be able to go out there, uh, get a win, and to get a submission uh, for the first time in a long time. Yeah, and he's a guy, you know, when he first came into the UFC back in 2009 and he, in his very first fight, he just pretty much went to the mattresses with Carlos Condit, uh, ended up losing a split decision, but I think everyone came away from that, uh, event feeling like he was a guy that was going to be able to make noise at welterweight. And then after that, the guy goes eight and one all the way until 2013 to immediately precede his three fight losing streak and, and, you know, seemed like a guy that, that maybe in another division, uh, could have could have gotten well gotten a title shot by that point. Um, so it's impossible to know, you know, where Jake Ellenberger is at really in his career. Like you said, he had that that three fight losing streak, and you you start to think you might want to pull the plug there. But then he comes back and gets this nice submission win over Josh Koscheck, and you do look at the quality of opponent that he had during that losing streak. Again, as Dre points out, only twenty nine years How old. How is that possible? It's a twenty nine years with a lot of of mileage on the tires. He has almost forty damn fights. Yeah. So, but like a guy that could maybe still go places. I don't know that he's necessarily going to be the champion, but it certainly seems like he's capable of making another successful run. I really, I had to go and look that up the, to fact check the mind of Dre there when he said 29. It's like, well, he, it's like, and he writes it with extreme surprise it's, too. It's every, it's like every time somebody tells me how old Joe Riggs is and it always, I always expect that somehow I'll wake up one day and Joe Riggs will have rapidly aged to fit the age that I think he is, uh, which, by the way, is 38. That's the age, That's the Joe age Riggs, you think he is. That's the age Joe Riggs should be. How old is he really? Uh, 22. Okay. <laughs> he just graduated high school? Yeah. All right. Well, we got time for one more here from John Joe Carter, who writes, The boys in Bellator announced a newly filed lawsuit against the UFC and Rampage Jackson today, asking that a judge grant an injunction and quote-unquote related relief to quote-unquote compel Jackson to honor his contractual agreement, unquote, ahead of his return to the UFC on April 25th. Uh, Rampage's signing with the UFC was announced back on December 20th. Is this totally sweet gamesmanship by Bellator or a serious dick move filing the lawsuit some two months after Jackson's move to the UFC was first announced? Uh, 
I don't see it as gamesmanship or like a serious dick move. I see th- see it as a thing where Bellator seems to reasonably believe that Rampage Jackson is in violation of his contract. Uh, Bellator told us pretty much at the time that he signed with the UFC back in December that it was going to go to court to make sure that he didn't fight for the UFC. To me, the most mystifying thing of all of this is people still in 2015 lining up to go to court to try to keep Rampage Jackson. <laughs> that is true. I I kept thinking like who what are the what are the scenarios under which you would consider yourself a winner in this dispute right well, that's the thing. on well, either like, side like what does Bellator think it's going to get from Rampage Jackson if it compels him to come back and finish out the last 3 fights on his 6 fight deal like that's Essentially, either it's either asking for that or maybe, I don't know how these things work, a cash settlement of some kind, which would probably be best case scenario if you're Bellator because, you know, given what we know about Quentin Rampage Jackson, he's not a guy who's going to come back and fight willingly for your promotion and put his best foot forward if he doesn't want to be there. Yeah. Even though he Kimbo even- Slice against Rampage Jackson? Would watch. Would watch. He won't even uh, really act like he wants to be there if he does want to be there. So, yeah, that's true. But also, I guess maybe what you can both tell yourselves is like, hey, maybe Rampage Jackson is the the thing that we, as long as we're battling over him in court, nobody gets to use him. Nobody. And, and then nobody has to pay him, right? Like, I think for Rampage, here's where I'd be like, how the hell did I end up here? I mean, on one hand, you kind of fell into the honeypot given like your age, your interest level in MMA and some of your recent performances. And you're still being able to, to get a bidding war going between two promotions in some sense. But then on the other hand, you don't have a whole lot of time to sit and wait out a court battle if you're Rampage, right? Well, yeah, none of it makes sense to me. Like we talked about the Bellator angle. I feel like it is equally mystifying from the UFC point of view. Uh, he's currently booked, by the way, to fight Fabio Maldonado at UFC 186, uh, in April. But like, if you're the UFC and you got so much going on, like what in God's name makes you feel like, A, yes, I would like Rampage Jackson to come and continue to work for my company, even though I feel like it's ended poorly between those two parties, like, 12 times before eight or 10 times they've fallen out. So number one, you want this guy back. Who's who's who draws ratings, but is nothing but trouble. And number two, you find out, Oh wait, he's still under contact contract from another organization. Why? Yes, we are interested in still signing this guy. Let's have a protracted legal battle to try to win the services of an aging Quentin rampage Jackson. You know why they feel like they would want him back because they have learned the same lessons that Bellator has learned, which is that if people know who the hell you are, then that's already a super valuable thing, and it almost doesn't matter whether you can still fight or whether you ever could fight. If people know who you are, damn it, they need that. That's the lesson. Tito and Stefan Bonner fucking shit up for everybody all the time. <laughs> or Thanks, guys. Or making it possible for Ken Shamrock to still get work without having to go fight a, a damn bare-knuckled gypsy on a back lane somewhere. Just degrees better, though. Like fighting Kimbo Slice and Bellator. uh, At least there will be a doctor there. We hope, yeah. I don't. Who knows? Be on some kind of reservation casino in Connecticut. You don't know what's what's happening. How much would you love to be a fly on the wall for the medical exams, the pre-fight medicals (laughs) for both those guys? (laughs) Which I assume what happened in the men's room at a Dave and Buster's. (laughs) I just hope that you know, in addition to the regular tests. you know, doing doing MRIs and eye exams and all that stuff. Let's get a cholesterol count on these guys. What do you say? Ken Shamrock's going to eat a, a hamburger with an onion ring on top of it and then go 
<laughs> do his medicals in the bathroom at Dave and Buster's. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern for the co-main event podcast, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news that we miss from Monday to Friday uh, in hopefully a funny and entertaining way. Um, as for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben... As we get further into round number one here, I hope that we can talk about the historical significance of Rhonda Jean Rousey and how she is starting to, as if we didn't know before, she's really starting to take on this aura as kind of a unique talent in mixed martial arts and and a unique uh, person who holds a unique kind of position in the sport. And I feel like that makes it hard to classify her in the, the short history of the sport so far. But just to start off the round, I suppose we should spend some time talking about the main event of UFC 184, all 14 seconds of it, uh, in which Ronda Rousey does what she does best, did what she does best, I guess, in uh, tapping out Kathleen Deborah Zingano in, in 14 seconds with uh, a, an arm bar from the top. Um, in the wake of that, Kat Zingano, I feel like, has been sort of unfor- unfairly maligned uh, in public, I feel like she went from being a beloved figure with an inspiring personal story to someone that people wanted to kind of point and laugh at on social media after this performance. Uh, what was your initial take? Did, did, was this spoiled for you before you watched it? Since I know you watched it late or did you manage to not know what was going to happen? Uh, I, I tried to avoid spoilers, but it enough seeped through that I knew that Ronda Rousey won via uh, early armbar. I didn't know exactly how early until I actually sat down and watched it. But I can't really, I mean, it was surprising exactly the way it unfolded because it was kind of from an awkward position and just, yeah. you know, you make one mistake really and Ronda Rousey's got you. So that part of it was surprising. But to hear Ronda Rousey, you know, hey, guess what? Ronda Rousey beat the woman she was heavily favored to beat and she did it via first round armbar. That I could not say was shocking at all to me, especially because when, one of the things we talked about was uh, Zengando's tendency to start a little slow and that the first round might be the most dangerous part for her. Now, that seems like maybe it got into her head a little bit because instead of sitting back and thinking like, well, I don't want to let Rousey get started and, and end up being one of those people who feels like I didn't really get my offense going, uh, she charged right across the cage at her instead, I guess thinking like, all right, if the thing I don't want to happen is have her come right across the cage at me, I guess I'll go right after her. Right. And that didn't turn out to be any better of a plan than sitting there and waiting for her. No, I feel like it, like the end result obviously was terrible. Like it went as poorly as it possibly could have gone. But from a pure game planning and strategy uh, point of view, I understand the impulse, which is one of the reasons why I thought it was kind of unfair uh, for a lot of people to jump on Twitter and like kind of make fun of her for having a dumb game plan or like doing so badly. But like, you know, we've we haven't seen anything. 
that has worked against Ronda Rousey yet to date in her career. So I totally understand the impulse if what you want to do is to like try to go out there and pressure her, disrupt her rhythm and not let her get into, uh, you know, the, the game that she has that we, that we've all seen time and time again. Uh, so I'm like, I don't necessarily consider that to be a terrible idea at all. Obviously the way it went down was awful and you get it like, and, but really like the only thing that happened, as you said early on, like, Kadzangano came charging across the cage, ended up in a, in an awkward scramble type situation. And against Ronda Rousey, that's all it takes because, you know, you see her do it in real time, which is impressive. And then you watch her do it on the slow motion replay, which I thought was even more impressive. And it's just like, uh, she has perfect technique and she has the weird strength of a lifelong grappler. Right. Which I think in that division is not something that a lot of fighters have. So like, not only is she the most athletic, not only does she have the best technique, but she's also able to just kind of flip you over, calmly trap your arm, and then apply whatever weird arm bar she pulls out of her quiver of 1000 arm bars, and uh, the fight is over. Yeah. Well, and that is what makes it difficult, I think, because it's right now, it's different than what we see in other divisions. Even like take a division like men's light heavyweight, right? Where you've got John Jones and we all are kind of looking at him these days as probably best pound for pound fighter on the planet. Uh, and he does seem to be just well above pretty much all those guys there. But then there's still enough space. They're, they're, they're close enough. That when somebody new comes up, okay, Daniel Cormier and John Jones, all right, this is going to be a good one. I mean, John Jones probably going to be the favorite, you know, going into all of these, but it's not inconceivable that Cormier can beat him. He's at least going to be able to go in there and push him. We're going to learn some things. We're going to see him deal with a different test. All right, beats Cormier. Anthony Johnson now. Well, he hits hella hard and, you know, he's, he's a tough guy. Maybe we'll see some, some different things there. You know, there's at least enough of a, of a comparison that you can make there, uh, to where you feel like, you're going to learn something new when you fight. And when Ronda Rousey fights uh, these women's bantamweights now, it just seems like it's her and then nothing and then everybody else clumped up together. Like the, the rank, you can rank them however you want and say, okay, this one is number one contender followed by, by her and her and her. And, you know, these are going to fight to see who's number three and who's number four. It doesn't matter. It's just her at the top and then everybody else way, way, way down below uh, all fighting each other very competitively most of the time to see who can be the next one to go in there and get beat up or, or who can be the next one to at least try something different uh, and then report back to everybody else on how poorly it went. Yeah, and that gap in uh, in competition like makes her really hard to categorize in a in a in a historical com- context. I feel like um, I wrote a thing on Bleacher Report last week about. You know, when, when Rousey said at one of her media events that she was going to keep fighting until she felt she was the greatest fighter of all time in any weight class man or woman, and then she would walk away. And basically I was like, all right, well, if that's true, then we all need to stop worrying about her retiring because she's not even close to being in the discussion with Fedor Emelianenko or Anderson Silva or George St. Pierre. Uh, and then she goes out and beats Kat Zingano in 14 fucking seconds. And it was, and I was like, okay, that, Maybe I was wrong. Maybe you could be in the running for greatest fighter of all time, but I still feel like it's really hard to categorize her because she's almost like, uh, Hoist Gracie in a way, fighting people back in the beginning of the UFC who didn't really have an answer or know what they were doing in the grappling department. She reminds me, uh, from a purely historical context, a little bit of Matt Hughes because there was a time back in the, you know, early 2000s when you could set your watch by the fact that Matt Hughes was going to beat up some hapless schmo, uh, at the UFC. 
but like obviously her style is a is a lot more uh dominant and and uh you know causes a lot more early stoppages than than Matt Hughes but to me it's like I still am kind of troubled by this idea of like obviously her career is still going you don't know where it's going to wind up but like where does she fit in in this in this like pantheon of great fighters and and like clearly you can't hold it against her that she's so much better than her peers like her contemporaries but at the same time like does she have the opportunity to become the greatest of all time if the women's bantamweight division continues to be kind of so shallow and not really have a a a great contender for her well i don't even think that the bantamweight division is necessarily shallow like i think it has depth but the depth is all at a certain level and her level is far beyond that you know because you have a lot like you look at like misha tate uh Sarah McMahon, Holly Holm, you could throw her in there probably now too, and I'm sure we'll talk more about her in round three. Um, you, and Katz and Gano, now you can, you can take them all and kind of clump them all together. Like if you match any of them up and just have a bunch of fights, um, just, just take, you know, two through eight or whatever in the women's bantamweight division, Jessica I, Alexis Davis, all those, you can just throw them in there, make any combination of matches. It'll all be fairly competitive. Um, and then it, it doesn't matter. You hold a tournament and, and whoever wins that, you go up against Ronda Rousey, you're still going to be a 10 to 1 underdog for good goddamn reason. And so I think the thing is, if she wants to be at some point beyond where she is now, you know, if, if being simply the best female fighter in the world is not enough for her and making a ton of money, uh, and being a superstar and all that stuff, if she wants to be remembered as something like, you know, the best fighter, any, regardless of gender or weight class, then she needs something that she cannot find right now at women's bantamweight because who could she beat and how quickly could she beat them at 135 pounds in the UFC right now that would change your already, you know, pretty high uh, evaluation of her? Like what if she beats Holly Holm in 10 seconds? Uh, like, no, it doesn't really, at this point, it would all just be confirming what we already know, which would still be impressive. But that's why I'm saying like she needs, she increasingly needs that cyborg Santos for cyborg Justino fight. Right. Yeah. And that's the only matchup that really seems to like mean anything at this point. Uh, and even that one, which I, you know, we'll talk more about this in the last round, but like, uh, it really does seem to be a physical, sticking point for cyborg to get down to 135 pounds she's talking about having her next fight at 145 for sure and then trying to drop to 135 and then after that maybe trying to fight rousey has she learned nothing from these really long detailed plans (laughs) i feel like like she has made it like it's become such an issue in the press that i feel like personally it seems like it's going to be so physically difficult for her to make it to 135 that she won't necessarily stand a chance there. I feel like if they fight at 135, uh, Rousey will just throw her and armbar her like the rest. And that will be impressive if indeed it gets done like that. And, and probably, like you said, the, the only win that could really, uh, open our eyes even more. But at the same time, even that fight to me is starting to seem less and less competitive, uh, as I think about it. And the interesting thing that, to think about about Rousey is, you know, what does she do? Like we've heard pretty much ever since she got in the UFC, every time she defends her title, uh, uh, we we have this lingering fear that it's going to be the last time because she's going to get stolen away by Hollywood or something like that. But, uh, you know, is it possible that she does sort of a, a thing like Dwayne The Rock Johnson where she goes off and becomes a movie star uh, but also still ha- has the occasional fight, makes the occasional appearance in the UFC? Because, frankly, like I kind of came to the realization this weekend, like if all she has to do is go out there, throw someone and armbar them – 
Like, it seems like she could do that till she's 50, frankly. <laughs> well, maybe eventually the, the talent and the, the vision would catch up with her. But I think that, again, if we're talking about what do you need to do to get to some other level than the already super high level you are in terms of, like, the esteem of fans and, and everybody else, uh, I feel like going up in weight to beat up, you know, the scariest person at that weight, at the person who's been the scariest person, the person who drove Gina Carano out of the sport, like, wouldn't that be the, like, the giant slayer uh, feat you'd need to accomplish in yeah. order to, to bring yourself to it? Like, it, like you said, if, if you make Cyborg come down there to 135, then there's always the potential, well, you know, Cyborg left her best stuff in the sauna just trying to get down there. If you go up to 140, uh, or, you know, to meet her at a catch weight or even go all the way up to 145 where, where Ronda used to fight, then I think you, you beat her there. Hell, man. Nobody can say a word against you. That, that you, you've really proved something there. Like the same way though that it's baffling to me because when you hear Dana White talk about it, he talks about it like it's just insane that she would go up, uh, 10 pounds to, right. to fight somebody else. Like, why, would the champ- why would the champion the do that? Four fights of her career there. Well, and also, like, how many times did we hear him talk about, uh, potential super fights between, you know, male champions? Like, George St. Pierre, uh, going up to fight Anderson Silva, Anderson Silva going up to fight John Jones. Why was that not insane to think that those guys might do that? Uh, but it's insane to think that Ronda could go up and, and fight Cyborg at 140 or 145. I mean, it's just, it seems like that's a convenient excuse to not make that fight or at least not make that fight yet. Uh, and it seems to me like the problem you're going to run into, and I wrote about this a little bit, is if people keep hearing like, okay, so Ronda Rousey beat this person in 14 seconds, the last person she beat him in 16 seconds. If you go ahead and you make a fight with Jessica I or Betchko Hay or something now, and the odds are going to be super lopsided in Rousey's favor – how many people who are Ronda Rousey fans, are hardcore MMA fans, who really want to see that fight, if there's not a strong undercard, are going to be like, man, I'm not paying 60 bucks right. to see that. I'll just I'll, – I'll see a damn gif of it later <laughs> on. It'll be in a vine uh, until – or at least I'll be able to see it before the UFC smacks it off the internet. It's not like I have to see the whole fight. It, you know, It's the same reason why my dad refused to buy those Mike Tyson fights right. after a while. Uh, I think they should have three fights. We'd do one at 145, one okay. at 135, and then if you need a third one, you do catch weight 140. All right. Now that would be a World Series of Fighting. The name <laughs> I just came up with. I like it. I like it. We'll get on the phone to the lawyers and see if we can do something. How about if we do it like it'll be kind of like Tekken style since we're doing like best of three and like we'll do one like in an underground parking garage with a bunch of people standing around with fistfuls of cash that they're just pumping methodically in the air. Yeah. Uh, another in like uh, an anime wonderland with a bunch of weird pandas playing in the background. Uh, and then the other one will be uh, out on a barren stretch of ice for some reason. All right. Well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on. Ben, hashtag welcome to the show. Uh-oh. The time used to be now, Ben, but the time is now over. The time was then? Now we're going with a hashtag that makes it sound like we've all just been called up from AAA Toledo. Hashtag welcome to the show. Are you fucking kidding me? So are you telling me that what we're going to do now is every few months we do a thing where the UFC holds a gay law fan event disguised as a press conference where Dana White can yell at us all about how sick the upcoming three months are. Uh, we can show a bunch of video montages for the upcoming fights and we can unveil a new hashtag. Man, do you remember when the UFC used to be regarded as super innovative and edgy? 
Not really. Now we're just doing corporately sponsored hashtags. Hashtag welcome to the show. But you I feel know like what, I could do without that, man. Are you fucking kidding me? It's got to be a full-time job at this point in the USC offices. They, you know they have a hashtag guy. Probably ask Tony Pettis. Who do you I, recommend? Do you I have su- a hashtag guy? I suppose two, as two guys who run a comedy-based MMA podcast, we should not complain about that. But I'm still going <laughs> hashtag are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? Obviously, we already discussed Kimbo Slice and Ken Shamrock going to throw down in Bellator. Now, I recorded uh, Bellator, and I went back and watched it, and when I saw these two sitting cage side to do a quick little interview there with Jimmy Smith, of course, I stopped it, rewound it, started from the very beginning, and here they are, their chance to sell us on this fight, convince us that it's not totally fucking ridiculous, uh, and Jimmy Smith asked Kimbo Slice, you know, how excited are you to be coming back to MMA into Bellator fight Ken Shamrock? Kimbo Slice's response, which also ends up being the only two words he says during the course of this interview, super excited. Nice. You fucking kidding me, man? Are you fucking kidding me? You can't even put a little bit of effort into this thing? Because <laughs> God knows we don't expect much of you when you get inside the cage, but at least give us a little something beforehand. Act like you're at least going to pretend that this shit is for real. You fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Excited to be here in the city of Japan. Super excited. All right, we're going to get started with round number two. That happens right now. Well, Chad... Liam McGeary must have had his shockers pulsating pretty damn hard as well because last Friday night in Uncasville, Connecticut, he took on the big homie for the Bellator light heavyweight title and won a pretty close unanimous decision becoming the new Bellator 205-pound champion. First of all, how'd you score that one? You know, um, first of all, great fight, by the way. Um, Props to Liam McGeary for... uh being active off his back and, and having an active guard in the 205 pound division, which is not something you see every day at light heavyweight, by no, the way. No, it is not. Uh, I had, I had the, the sinking feeling deep in my brain's heart that Liam McGeary deserved to win that fight. But I honestly thought that the judges in the state of Connecticut were probably going to give it to Manny Newton just because the very seldom that we see a guy win his fight off, win a fight off, off his back like that. Those are tribal judges for one thing from the tribal commission. It's that's a it's a the Mohegan Sun. It's not it's not just like you know some jokers in this by the state of Connecticut. So maybe that maybe okay. that's where your calculus went. All right, I stand corrected. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like per, pretty much, uh, he had Emmanuel Newton on the defensive the whole time. Uh, every time they went to the ground, for the most part, Manny Newton uh, himself had a couple of submission attempt tries. But uh, it was a close fight. It was a good fight. But even though it broke the heart of the CME universe, even though I think close listeners to this podcast uh, would, would know not to be surprised by the outcome of a Liam McGeary victory. Uh, but uh, uh, I thought McGeary deserved to take it, man. He, just an impressive performance by him kind of from his back, I guess. Although 
you do have to wonder how that fight plays out if Emmanuel Newton fights it as though he had ever even heard of someone else submitting him before. Like, if his coaches had ever even told him about a triangle choke. Because that's how he kind of fights. Like, he honestly reminded me a little bit of uh, Brock Larson back in the day, who was like an up-and-coming welterweight in the UFC and WEC for a while. But again, a dude who fought like he'd never heard of submissions before and eventually just got tapped out enough that, that it kind of uh derailed his ascension, I guess you could say. But yeah, man, Manny Newton, just not worried about it, I guess. Yeah, I always wonder how judges are going to score those, right? Because especially like throwing up submissions off your back, it's one of those things where if you're sitting in a triangle choke, you got the guy in a pretty what looks like a pretty deep triangle choke for three minutes of the round, you know, what does that count for? Because if like at one point late in the fight, they mentioned that Liam McGeary had broken a record uh, for the most submissions attempted, which is not a record you want to break because it means you're not getting those submissions. Like it means it's not working. And that's kind of the thing about uh, submissions like that. But it, it did seem like he was at least using it. He would use that triangle to break uh, Emmanuel Newton down, break him off down to his side, sometimes getting on top and at least just getting him down there enough to where he could hammer him a little bit with elbows and, and hammer fists and stuff and, and wear him down a little bit and at least show the judges like, hey, I'm even though I'm not tapping the guy with this, uh, I am forcing him like into a defensive posture with it and I'm not just sitting here getting stacked. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, Manny Newton won the last two rounds pretty clearly, I thought. Uh I thought was showing a lot of uh, a lot of heart there in the in the later rounds, and it just made me wonder. Okay, all he needed was for a couple judges to give him one of those first three rounds, and he retains the title. I wonder how much of it is when he fights. At times, I remember the Bellator commentators mentioning that he looks beatable sometimes, yeah. and and it, and it gets. And I think that also has an effect on the judges. Like at times, he just fights like you're not sure he totally wants to be in there. That there's not a huge sense of urgency. All the time, and I think that sometimes that makes him look like he's doing worse than he is. Yeah, well, he does have a very strange fighting style. We saw it also, like in his last fight against Linton Vassell and the fight before that against Joey Beltran, even like where he just kind of prowls around in there. You know, he's kind of like turning to the side. He's got his shoulders all hunched up, and it does make him look awkward and and beatable, and like he's not doing very much. And like in previous appearances, especially those last couple of fights. Uh, it was just that he pulled a little Manny Newton magic out and ended up winning by stoppage, uh, especially against Joey Beltran, I thought, like, uh, which was clearly a fight that Bellator put together to try to, you know, showcase Emmanuel Newton a little bit. And then, you know, Joey Beltran was giving him as much as he wanted there for a while until just another Emmanuel Newton spinning back fist KO to add to the collection. Uh, but one of the things that I don't, one of the things that I don't feel like, uh, helped Liam McGeary cement his, uh, uh, you know, a victory, make it look clear cut was just how astonished he looked when the decision was announced. Yeah. He looked over at Emmanuel Newton, but like, shit, really? <laughs> like that's dude, that's not how you do it. <laughs> no. Just put your hands up and act like celebrate. You, like it was never in doubt. Like you're pretty sure you won all five rounds. Yeah, that, that, there was definitely, but you look on both their faces, you didn't see a look on Emmanuel Newton's face like, this is a grave injustice. I can't believe this happened. You know? He did. He looked a little surprised, but like, also like maybe he knew that he didn't give his best. And hey, man, frankly, if you're Bellator, it's not like you got any other pressing business going on at 205 pounds. You could do a lot worse than just having those guys, you know, fight again. And maybe this time, like Emmanuel Newton can spend a couple weeks at the body shop figuring out not to get caught in those triangles all the time. Maybe you got a, a different story. Now, see, that was going to be my next point was 
why not? Like, what good reason could there be not to have these guys fight again? And maybe even a third time if you need to. I mean, that is one of the things. Like, at the, the Bellator light heavyweight division right now, all the other stuff that you have, like the other guys that are out there, are all kind of in this territory where, like, you could just match them up in one of those fights that has absolutely no stakes and is just kind of weird and funky and nobody would complain. There's plenty of stuff for the other guys to do. Let the let the guys who are actually fighting for a belt go ahead and do it again. I, I don't see why not. Uh, and I also, though, I'm going to be super interested to hear uh, some Emmanuel Newton interviews whenever he comes back to hear how the big homie takes uh, a loss like this because the stuff he was starting to say there about not you know not only his usual stuff about uh, his deja vu's and coincidences and how often he sees the number thirty three and Jesus and how he's basically just he's basically Jesus, uh, but how he is so in control of his fate and his destiny that he's going to retire uh, with the Bellator belt without ever being beaten. Then you go out there right after you say that and you get beat. Uh, what do you tell yourself right now if you're Manny Newton? Because I'm sure it's something ridiculous and awesome. Maybe he also didn't rack in on the tribal judges. There do you, you think? go. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, maybe once you, you factor that in, you go back, you, you look at your, your, your shock waves, uh, recalibrate them a little bit, you reload and come on back. But I'm saying if you're fighting Bellator, maybe the tribal judges is something you should think about because they do an awful lot of uh, Indian casino shows. Yeah, they really do. I mean, I guess if you're Bellator, you only got a couple of options at this point. I'm not even sure I can name another member of the Bellator light heavyweight division besides Emmanuel Newton, Liam McGeary, and then the uh, the old-timer, the Legends division. I mean, I guess you could have Liam McGeary totally murder Tito Ortiz. Uh because if you, I guess if you're Bellator, if he does that, maybe that makes Liam McGeary a guy. And if, if he screws up and loses, then Tito Ortiz is your champion, which I guess for the purposes of Bellator could be worse. Uh, I guess maybe you, you, you book this, you book this trilogy, the epic trilogy, Manny Newton, Liam McGeary, waiting to see if you can, if you can make Phil Davis happen. You know, <laughs> Phil Davis currently in a contract dispute with the UFC. Last well, I heard. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the look and feel of this Bellator show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, seemed, I like it. Yeah, me I too. I like it. Seems like they're putting a little more effort into the, the live viewing experience. Although the whole, like, the British invasion thing did not really work it out. kind of fizzled. That, Card that subject well. to change. Uh, yeah, I, I blame Czech Congo. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the look reminded me a lot of some strike force stuff. Yeah. You know, where you got that little, Ramp leading right to the cage, and we're going to go ahead and shoot off fireworks indoors because fuck everybody. <laughs> I, I just like that it seemed like we're looking at a Bellator that is willing to to try some new stuff and to just be a little bit more fun, Yeah, uh, which is something that it was missing before when it tried before to go with the, like, hey, we're the pure sport angle, like title shots are earned, not given, and then doing a complete 180 from that, like... Uh, we're the people who make ridiculous, just batshit fights and light off explosives inside. Uh, your mom won't let you come over here, and she's right not to. Bellator. I love it. Yeah, I, I like it too. Somewhere Bjorn Rebney rolled over in his grave. He died, right? Yeah, I, I assume he died of grief. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three.
Well, Ben, we closed out round one of the show talking a little bit about Ronda Rousey and what kind of star, what kind of draw she can be for the UFC. Uh, and I think that this victory over Kat Zingano kind of ushers in an interesting time in her in her career because I think you're going to have to make some choices about uh, you know, what kind of fights you want to book for her and how you want to portray her as a champion at the post fight press conference to this Dana White compared her to Mike Tyson, which is something that I think as we've talked about on the show before, it feels like the UFC has been trying to subtly do for a while now, draw parallels between Mike Tyson and, and Ronda Rousey for better or for worse, I guess you would say. Uh, but just pretty much came out and said it at the end of, of UFC 184. Um, and it seems like all of the challengers that she has in front of her at in the UFC right now, whether it be Betch Cohia or Jessica I, uh, kind of feel like opponents that you would put out there for Ronda Rousey to beat quickly and to kind of establish this Mike Tyson air about her that, you know, she's just going to go out there and beat everybody in, in the first round in under a minute, and she's so dominant, et cetera, et cetera. I guess just to start this round, my question for you is, does that work in MMA? Can you be... A, a draw can you be a, a successful draw for the ufc if your thing is that you beat everyone in under a minute i mean i guess there are worse things to have right uh, and but i think that one difference between the uh the way mike tyson was doing that and the way that somebody like ronda rousey is going to do it is you know mike tyson would do it and they, people would still complain about hey what did i pay for you know did i pay it's over in 30 seconds uh, but at least then with Mike Tyson, there was this terrifying level of violence on display that was still awe-inspiring. With Ronda Rousey, it's way more of a display of technical brilliance uh, with these armbar submissions. So I don't know if people get that same jolt of electricity. Uh, maybe they do. Uh, but especially with like the Kat Zingano one, it did feel like... Damn it, we were really hoping, this was the one we were really hoping for a fight, right? And it did seem like Kat Zingano was still capable of giving her that fight, that she just, you know, she made one small mistake, and against Ronda Rousey, one small mistake is all you really have to make, and she caught her, and so it kind of felt like we wish we could be like, oh, come on, let's, let's just start over. Let's, mulligan, let's do a mulligan and just start, and that's what it felt like uh, afterwards, people talking about, okay, well, Kat Zingano won't have to do that much to get a rematch here. Uh, everybody just kind of wants to see some real, real fight from Ronda Rousey. So I don't know. I mean, it, to me right now, if you book Ronda Rousey versus Betch Cohia, I feel like I, I know how that one's going to go. I, I don't even really feel like I super need to see it. If you book her against yeah. Jessica I, same thing. I mean, I just don't feel like anybody right there that we just mentioned uh, is a, a super big challenge. I would have said beforehand that your best bet might have been Holly Holm, but then when we saw Holly Holm, she did not look spectacular in her UFC debut. Right. Yeah, let's t talk about Holly Holm for a minute because I agree with you about Betch Cohia. I will watch it because I feel like it's going to be fun in the lead-up. Betch Cohia, kind of a self-made woman, I guess you would say. A lot of excitement in, in prior the, to the belt. In the 135-pound division. Uh, she booked this thing for herself. So if she gets the chance to go fight Ronda Rousey, hey, man, I feel like she deserves it, frankly. Uh, since she kind of blazes trail on her own, but you're right about Holly Holm. And, 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 uh, I feel like we are at the point just to, to follow up on the initial point that Ronda Rousey needs some competition. She needs someone that we feel like is going to give her a fight because even with Mike Tyson, when it finally came down that he lost to Buster Douglas, I feel like that was some of the story of that fight was that a lot of people missed it, right? They didn't watch it because it was in Japan for starters. Right. So, uh, it took place kind of in the middle of the night here, right? Late, late at night. And, uh, people didn't want to pay for it because they thought Mike Tyson was just going to 
destroy Buster Douglas like he'd done everyone else. And for Ronda Rousey, I feel like if that's who she is, that makes her a UFC star that a lot of people will want to go to the bar to watch, but not a lot of people will want to spend 60 bucks to buy on pay-per-view, which is a problem. Now, we had hoped, as you said, that Holly Holm was going to be a person who could come in and be an immediate challenger for her. Didn't seem like that's going to be the case. Uh, she just uh, edged out a pretty tight split decision against Raquel Pennington in her UFC debut. Uh, I was surprised with Holly Holm how much it appeared that the moment affected her, that it seemed like the moment, uh, I don't want to say swallowed her up or was bigger than, than she could be because she ended up winning the fight and it wasn't a terrible performance, but she looked nervous on her way to the cage. She looked tight during the fight. And I would have thought, you know, with all of her, her boxing experience and with her previous, what, seven or six or seven wins in, in MMA on the, on the independent circuit where she was just wrecking people that, uh, she would have been a little bit more at ease with it, but it did not appear that that was the case. I would have thought the same thing with that just from the boxing experience that she's been in big fights before that maybe she'd have a little easier time. But, you know, we've heard, how many times do we have to hear this from people that the, the first UFC fight can get to you even when you are used to competing in front of big crowds in a lot of different venues? Uh, you can still come in there and be surprised at how nervous you are. So I don't know. Let's, let's not jump to too many conclusions about her just yet is what I'd say because I, I think that that was, you know, when, uh, asked for some limited predictions in my Twitter mailbag beforehand, I said that what I thought would happen was that Rousey would steamroll Katzengano, uh, Holm would win, but maybe not, maybe feel a, a little bit of the pressure, um, and, then we'd be find ourselves in this position where we think, okay, what's next for for Ronda Rousey? Because I don't think it feels like Holly Holm is the fight to make right now. Right. I think now what you want to do is match some match Holly Holm against somebody else uh, in the top ten, preferably you know maybe the top five. See how she does against somebody like that, uh, and you know maybe see if that's what it was. If we're, if she'll shake a little bit of that off, because I thought that like you said, looking a little tight and looking like she just wasn't really ready to let it all go and yeah. go after Raquel Pennington. Uh, and, and that was one of the things that really came through in that fight for me. Right. And, and, but I, I still think that that's part of the problem right now. If you're Ronda Rousey is you've got to be looking at this top 10 and going, okay, who's it going to be? Betch Gohea at least gives you the, like, she's going to talk a lot of shit beforehand. She's going to come in with a lot of intensity. Like you said, she clearly uh, blazed this, this trail herself. Uh, so I feel like that could provide some interesting storyline stuff before you get there. I think as soon as people see them stand next to each other, <laughs> then you'll see the odds really take take a huge jump in Rousey's favor. Yeah, and let's be clear on Holly Holm. I feel like she showed uh, the building blocks of a of a formidable person in the in the 135 pound division because she's big. She's five foot eight, and she just kind of towered over Raquel Pennington, who's officially listed perhaps generously at five foot seven. Uh, she's got super athletic mobility. She gets around the cage uh, in a very agile way, and obviously, she's a super. Uh, talented striker um so i feel like yeah if you if you give her a couple of fights to get her bearings and get her sea legs under her maybe she is someone that eventually challenges for the title but it doesn't seem like uh that's going to happen immediately which i think might be the best thing for holly holm frankly uh to give her some time to kind of establish herself as a as a ufc fighter uh i am though with her now after having seen her ufc debut just as i am with everyone else skeptical that she ever gets to the point where she can uh, defend a Ronda Rousey judo throw just because uh, even during the, the pre-fight hype and lead up 
to this fight. They were talking about how Holly Holm first started going to Greg Jackson's gym when she was a soccer player in high school and then eventually like kind of fell in love with the striking game and in her late teens and became a boxer. And every time I hear a life story like that, I'm reminded of Ronda Rousey with weird lifelong grappler strength and the way that she just disposed of Kat Zingano when she got her hands on her. Uh, and I just feel like, man, that's just so rare right now in this weight class. And, and to have people that like, you know, they found their way to mixed martial arts eventually, like as an adult and turn that into their thing is, is great. But it's, I feel like it's going to be really hard to find someone that can compete with the weird child prodigy upbringing of Ronda Rousey. I, I think so too. And I also think that, uh, if you were going to go in there and exploit, uh, her, her stand up, if that was going to be your plan, like, Hey, uh, I come in from this boxing, kickboxing background, and I'm super sharp there. Um, the time to do that, I think, might have already passed. You know, I'm not saying that if you get into a kickboxing match between Ronda Rousey and Holly Holm, that Holly Holm doesn't still win. Uh, but I'm saying that the the difference between your skills is, especially, you know, if you fight her in six months or a year or something, it's not going to be great enough that you're going to be able to ride through just on that. And, yeah. uh, you know, one of the things you always hear, like I, I talked to Kat Zingano beforehand was saying, you know, did you do a whole lot to prepare for the judo aspect? Did you bring in somebody, some really great judo players or something? And she was kind of saying, ah, oh, you know, I've trained with who I usually train with, that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's really hard to get somebody in there for you that can show you, like, here's what you're going to be dealing with from Ronda Rousey. And the judo people, especially real, somebody who is has really uh, gotten good at the MMA judo application, they're just going to do stuff and get you in positions that, that other people are just not going to be able to prepare you for. Like You're not just going to go to wrestling practice at Greg Jackson's and get everything you need to be able to roll in there against Ronda Rousey. Yeah. You know, I feel like Cyborg Santos is the only fight really at this point. I feel like you have to make that at any weight, however you can get it done. Uh, you know what seems weird to me to consider um, almost in retrospect is why the UFC doesn't just have a women's featherweight division, you know, that you could have Chris Cyborg be your champion of. Because clearly in, in Strike Force, there was a featherweight division. Invicta has a featherweight division. Uh, it seems really weird to me that like the sticking point is this weight thing and like, oh my God, we, Ronda can't go up to 145 and Chris Cyborg can't come down. It's just like, I feel like, Chris Cyborg is one of the two most marketable female fighters in the world. And to just kind of close the door on her because she can't get to 135 uh, and also some personal baggage, let's be honest, uh, is is like kind of a weird thing to do. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, let's not act like the personal baggage has kept the UFC from making too many other true. fights. We're talking true, about true. Vitor Belfort and Chris Weidman. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, hashtag personal baggage. So – that's that can't be the the sticking point alone. I think the issue has always been a concern in the featherweight that there's just not enough talent there. Um, but I think now is the the perfect time to use your relationship with Invicta, right? Where you don't even necessarily need to worry about running a full time featherweight division. You could just have uh, Cyborg come over. You know, beat up somebody, be your champion, let Invicta worry about the day-to-day -day running of a featherweight division and, and keeping uh, an eye out for new talent and bringing people up through the ranks, finding people for the champion to fight. Don't even feel like you need to have too many actual featherweight fights in the UFC. But I do think that, like, let's not let the weight issue be the thing that keeps the, the fight that would obviously be the most interesting women's fight you could make in any division 
anywhere in MMA. It's obviously Rousey versus uh, Cyborg. Let's just admit that to ourselves. And I'd rather see a, a catchweight bout than to see us force Cyborg. Uh, in like we can't be the we can't do, have it both ways, Chad. We can't be the people who are saying motherfuckers need to stop these extreme unhealthy weight cuts, and also Cyborg needs to stop messing around and get down to 135 and fight Ronda Rousey. Like it's not too ridiculous to think that they could meet at 140 uh, so that they could both make a bunch of damn money. I agree. All right, let's do just saying stuff, and we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, you know the the Gracie breakdowns? Oh, yes, I'm familiar with them. I like the Gracie breakdowns. Sure, yeah. You get a lot of good info in there, especially as a, a recreational grappler myself. I always like to, to see them kind of go back through some of the finer points, show us some of the things we might have missed, uh, do, a, do a detailed analysis. But this week, I'm just saying, in discussing Ronda Rousey's 14-second armbar victory over Kat Zingano at UFC 184, the Gracies posted a 25-minute video to YouTube. Wow, that's longer. Yeah. I mean, they don't even really start talking about Ronda Rousey until at least five or six minutes in. Uh, by the 15-minute mark, they've already moved on to just plugging various other Gracie ventures, including... What appears to be, and I am not shitting you, an electric skateboard okay. of some kind. I'm just saying I really like the stuff that the Gracies have to say about jujitsu and its application to MMA and the finer points of grappling techniques. And I think these Gracie breakdowns are a lot of fun to watch. But you guys are acting like you have a 30-minute show on HBO, and you don't. You have a YouTube channel. Five minutes, man. I'm just saying, Gracies. Let's, let's keep it manageable here. Ben, this week, I'm just saying, you know that you cover a nerdy, hyper-obsessed niche sport when the UFC's, uh, I guess, longtime backstage logistics manager is rumored to have quit and or been fired and or parted ways with the company. And uh, people jump on Twitter and be acting like a Watergate is fucking breaking before their very eyes. <laughs> You're talking I, about Burt Watson, I, babysitter of the stars. I like Burt Watson. You like Burt. Everyone likes Burt Watson. Nice Burt Watson is one of the most infectious and well-liked personality in the sport. But he's also the guy who just comes out to rev up the crowd before the weigh-ins start. He's the guy who lies to the fighters about what time the buses are going to leave <laughs> to get them on there at the proper time. It's an important job. It's a necessary job. Uh, but if he parts ways with the UFC on bad terms, and let's let's face it, almost everyone parts ways with the UFC nope. on bad terms. Nobody lives forever there. Uh, it, I mean, let's just not sit around on Monday morning and make it seem like we're waiting for something to get outraged about on Twitter. Let's try to make sure that we know the difference between stuff happening and Cap's letters breaking news. So you're saying he didn't... Uh Get off, get a, walk out onto the White House lawn, get onto a helicopter, signal us all, and then zip off into the sky, never to be seen again? I'm just saying, let's try not to be posting tweets like, why are the mainstream sites not covering this? Like, I don't know, dude, because it's not news. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that how there's no event this week. God damn it. What will we even talk about next week? I'm sure we'll figure something out. Look ahead to UFC 185, I suppose. Burt Watson expose? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that'll be Anthony Pettis against Rafael Dos Anjos. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. If he parted ways with the UFC, do you think we could hire him to come on here as a hype man? That would help. Get you here on time, maybe? He could lie to you about what time your wife was, was pulling out of the drive in your SUV to bring you down to Chad's house? That might work. That might work. <laughs>
Also, you know, maybe just